1: In this episode of Dungeon Deep Dive, the audio quality takes a bit of a dip, but the research quality is as comprehensive and wacky as usual. See you soon. Welcome back to Dungeon Deep Dive, a fantasy podcast of what-ifs, how-tos, and whys. To my left, back in the studio after a brief hiatus...
2: Danae Vags.
3: Hey! Hey, welcome back! And also in the studio, as ever, I'm Lachlan Hoy.
2: Nothing special about the
3: No. Just here today, I reckon. Just here. Just here. Just here, as
2: Mm. president,
3: when you're not here. Yeah, well, typically I I report from home.
2: Is this whole podcast just me being mean to Lachlan? Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to say I'm, I'm quite nice to do it off air.
3: Yeah, it's this is very uncharacteristic. The stream. So
2: what are we doing today, Tully?
3: Uh, so today we're going to talk a little bit about mermaids. Mm. Yeah. Yes.
2: So back to the one time that we talked about what that tail do for
3: With The losty siren. Yeah. Yes. Ah, um, oh,
1: forgot about that. Um, Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about mermaids. Uh, Now, we've changed up our structure just a little bit for you guys at home. Yeah,
3: Um, so mixing up the
1: formula a little uh, this week. So uh, instead of just approaching broad topics such as uh, history, how-to, and then implementation, we've actually uh, come with a research question that we've asked ourselves and that we are um, answering
3: for you. Each of the three of us has it right. That is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, once we've discussed all of that, we'll just come back after the break and discuss implementation then. Exactly. A kind of, bit more of a streamlined, bit more conversational. Let us know what you think. Switching it up. Just like yeah. so my no sex Ooh. Um, <laughs> On that note,
1: we would love to hear <laughs> any more feedback uh, that you guys have for us. Please, we would love, we've got about 600 of you now, uh, which I am absolutely thrilled by. And we'd love to hear from you. Uh, All our socials are at Dungeon Deep Dive. Or if you don't like social media and you'd prefer to stick it to email, we are deepdivetnc at gmail.com.
3: And with that, let's bloody jump right on into it, fellas. What accent is that? Oh, you know. The accent. (laughs) The definitive (laughs) accent. That Um, was the original accent. That was the accent of the uh, language they spoke uh, Mm -hmm. when they were building the Tower of Babel. Fun fact. Ah, there you go. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Excellent. So I might
1: start off. I've got a bit of a meaty one here, Uh, quite literally. I'm asking, how does mermaid biology affect how they interact with others?
2: Mm. Are you saying that mermaids are meaty?
1: I'm saying mermaids are meaty. (gasps)
2: Okay,
1: go on. Yep, interesting. So essentially I've broken this down into a couple of subcategories because it's about the things that are most likely to affect how they interact with others. So I've approached it a couple of different ways, which is by what class they are. So this is taking you back to biology. They'll all be uh, in the kingdom, animalia, phylum, chordata. The class will be um, dependent on how you create it. So that's what I'm going to be talking about now is approaching whether they're amphibians, so from the class amphibia, mammals from mammalia, reptiles from reptilia, or fish from chondrichthias, or Actinopterygii.
3: Uh, Say that three times fast Please, <laughs> before you continue, yes? explain those words you just said.
1: So fish will have a couple of different families there. Mm-hmm. Cephalopods, who are symmetrical and have arms. So that's things like your squids, your octopodes, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, chondrichthias, which is uh, cartilaginous fish, which are sharks, manta rays, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then there's Actinopterygii, which are ray-finned fish. So they're ones where you'll see um, the, their mm-hmm. fins have sort of spines and they're webbed almost. Okay. And then I do talk a little bit about Sarcoropterogai, uh, Sarcopterygii, sorry, who are mostly extinct now, are their lobe-finned fish. So uh, the most known example is the Celiacan. And okay. that's where the, the fins are just a solid lobe.
2: For a second, I thought you were talking about mermaid species and you're
1: like this one's almost extinct now and i'm like honey, honey they never were. <laughs> i'm going to to open up with probably the most likely and for me the least interesting which is cool. fish assuming that mermaids are fish this is broke officially it's broke now um this is basically the, the most likely because they are seen to be marine animals so these are the ones that you'll see that have Um, gills that are going to be entirely aquatic Um, they're the only ones that can breathe properly in water all of the time
3: so we're talking exclusively
1: gills here exclusively gills um, with I think octopods are slightly different with the way they breathe Um, cephalopods operate just slightly differently um, but I couldn't find too much on their um, respiration so I haven't really touched on that too much fair enough um but I've broken each of these classes into some subsections. Um, the first one is, do they fuck? Because by God... So.
3: That's really important. Mm, that's it like, is... honestly, question number one.
1: Yeah, is do they fuck? Um, and this actually does have some fairly big ramifications.
3: You're damn fucking right it does. Mm. has some big ramifications on my goddamn weekend,
1: is what it has. Mm. Um, so, for fish, and that is that, that broad category... Uh, broaching cephalopods, um, cartilaginous fish, ray fin fish, and lobe fin fish.
2: Yeah, the answer is...
1: sexy to me, baby. It, <laughs> The answer is, it depends. So, uh, fish with cartilage, that'll be things like your sharks. Um, I would say that's what we're going to model our mermaids on if we're going to make them cartilaginous fish. I'm going to use a lot of biological terms here, so feel free to take a break, look these up. Most Cartilaginous fish are ovoviviparous. Um, what
3: that means is that. Um, they... I don't think you need to explain what ovoviviparous yeah. fish is. Who means. doesn't know what ovoviviparous means?
1: Please move on, Charlie. Excellent. Extra... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so ovoviviparous means that they seem to have a live birth. But the ovo at the beginning of that means that they are still stored in eggs within the body. Okay. Yep. Um, so, some, some sharks are just oviviparous which means that they are just laid eggs. Um, a lot of them will be ovoviviparous, which means that they were born live but kept in eggs in the womb. Occasionally, they will be uh, viviparous, which means that they will cannibalise their siblings in utero. Fuck yes. Mm. Yes.
3: Now that's a cool fucking shark.
1: Um, so that's going to be more the aggressive breeds. Yeah, you're damn right. <laughs> I bet, huh? <laughs> I love some aggressive breeds. You, you've had some um, okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that sort of behaviour is something important that you do, do need to check out because if they are going to be laying eggs, then they're going to be very territorial. Mm. Whereas if they have live birth, then likely it's not going to be as territorial in that area because they can just move with with the babies. Wait, we're we talking they're laying fertilised eggs, or
2: they're laying eggs, and so then some poor dudes just gotta
1: fertilise them with that They are laying laying fertilised eggs. Okay. So sharks. Sharks fuck Wait For real? For real Sharks fuck
3: God Yes So proud of sharks Fucking hell That's so good Yeah so And the way you
1: can tell that Is they have claspers So uh, Take a quick look Have a look at uh, claspers This is uh, This is a fish vagina That's what that is
2: Okay I'm looking it up now Um, One second
1: we're getting there. We're getting to class. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, is it that bad? No, 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 it's
2: not.
1: Yeah, it's it's fairly similar. And as
2: a lesbian, I approve.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, it's official. Dana fucks sharks.
3: Okay, Denae so. fucks hard. To air, so to just kind of wrap the whole podcast up. Sharks shark, mermaids pop. are fuckable. Okay, yeah. see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: oh god, the pictures get worse.
1: So we're going to get a little bit weird with this bit. And now I'm going to talk about cephalopods. Cephalopods are your octopus, octopus, your squid, that sort of thing. Um, now, they kind of fuck. Um, the oh. way the way I mean by that is, generally, they're known to... The male is known to spoon sperm packets into the mantle cavity.
2: Well, that's a nice way of having
1: sex. Yeah, so basically... Um, using a very specific organ, sometimes usually it's I believe the third arm along, they will just pick up some sperm packets that they've put out, and oh, they will so just
0: them. hand
1: them over and then place them gently into the mantle cavity of the female. Of course. Yep. So yeah. it's it's a little kinky little kinky.
3: Don't um, you guys hate it when you go down to the, the local fish and chip place and you get some chips and they've just they've run out of sperm packets? And it's like, why am I... It's so dry now. I'm what just going to have to do? settle Potato sauce. <laughs> <laughs> no, that actually is just fish sperm packets. Ah, sorry. right, okay. That's, that's how they make it.
1: With this, if they're cephalopods, they are going to give birth as, as juveniles from basically these long strings of eggs. Essentially, they lay strings of eggs in a certain place and they guard them. Um, if you look it up, it's crazy. It's like Christmas lights. But they will usually give birth just as juvenile versions of the cephalopods. Sometimes they're like para larvae, so they're a slightly different form. But essentially it's the same.
3: Okay, that's kind of neat. Yeah.
1: Now, ray-finned fish, they're closest to what we would see as modern fish. Most modern fish are Um They spawn, which is... Uh, so they they don't fuck.
3: No! No! They... Throw them out. Worst mermaids
1: ever. Mm. So essentially, they they spawn, which is that they will find a specific place uh, where the female will just dump a bunch of eggs simult- and simultaneously, the male will just jizz all over the place.
0: Really
3: hoping for the best with the timing there, huh? Yeah. Really just really just hoping that things there are going to work out. I imagine there's not a whole lot of communication. Like, I don't think I don't imagine that they're like writing down the that in their like day planner or whatever no no right, i don't
2: think anyone's giving them like a little plastic cup and they're like now henry make sure you save up all you just keep it nice and warm
1: so essentially when i talk about uh reproduction here especially with eggs it is important to note that when there are more eggs the infant mortality rate I mean, goes up there's more a lot um if there's lots of eggs, it's unlikely that all of them will reach maturity. In fact, it's likely that only a couple will. Um, whereas if there are less eggs, usually that signals that there's going to be a higher survival rate.
3: Huh. But I mean, I imagine that's probably more correlation rather than causation, right? Because surely a creature evolves to have a larger number of eggs if its youth mortality rate is so oh. abysmal that it needs to have that like extra chance.
1: Absolutely. It's a, it's a bit of both oh of course they lay lots of eggs so like turtles yeah oh
2: my god turtle mermaids
1: Uh, i will get there i will get there
2: oh good um that's a Um, (laughs) moment
1: so that's that's based on do they fuck um next up is what environments you can find them in so my bad. end of list (laughs) so for the fish literally anywhere in the ocean just go buck wild um they are Literally any body of water, you can find fish.
3: Yeah, fish kind of be like that.
1: Yeah. Um, usually large fish are more likely to appear in saltwater climates, uh, saltwater areas. Although catfish are an exception to that. They can grow to exceptional sizes in freshwater. That's
0: terrifying.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, giant catfish are awful. They are the most
0: disgusting things.
2: Yeah, I remember going camping on Fraser Island as a kid and there was this one creek slash lagoon thingy that had these giant catfish and I was horrified
3: by them. Mm, They are fairly horrifying. Wait, you could just see them?
2: They're like this big.
1: Oh, Oh, giant catfish can get
3: to, I believe, up to two and a half metres long? Uh, Horrifying. For those at home, that's twice the size of the fish that Danae just indicated. And even that size
2: was... Horrifying. Yes. And they have these big mouths
3: and... Oh. Well, because, see, I come from... They nibble I, on
2: your
3: toes. I come from North Queensland, so my experience, my exposure to, like, catfish is in North Queensland rivers, which, like, I don't know if you guys have been up there, but you mm. cannot see what is at the bottom of those. No, they're murky. They're you know. murky. Yeah, well, you know, because of all the uh, dirt that creates dengue fever and all of the crocodiles killing animals in there and all of the, you know giant catfish. Dengue
2: fever sound like the newest
1: band on like what is it, Triple J. And here we are with a new single from Dengue Fever. Catch them live at the Tripped in three days. Um, so, what environments literally anywhere, what do they eat? Almost every large fish is carnivorous. Just because of sea environments, the, the caloric requirements that they need is huge. Um, that is to mention that also uh, fish are endothermic which means they create their own heat mm. um, they don't create as much as mammals do but they do create their heat rather than uh, get it from the sun or from their environment
3: I mean, I, Yeah, which I guess kind of makes sense there's yeah. probably not a whole lot of heat to absorb down the and, depths of the ocean
1: and that's partially why you can see fish in arctic environments where you can't see uh, mm. and, and can't see um, aquatic reptiles
3: oh. these aquatic
1: reptiles they're Ectothermic, which means they need to get heat from other sources and they will just freeze. They're almost almost entirely carnivorous and hunting styles really do vary. Um, There's so many from camouflage and ambush through to specific hunting. Um, There's even, for sharks, this is horrifying, the cookie cutter shark, which is a small shark. Which is a small shark that can dislocate its jaw, attach onto something, swivel around... And just remove a section.
2: Retracted. That's very (laughs) horrifying.
1: Yeah. Just imagine imagine a cookie cutter with teeth. Attach that to a shark. And then go wild.
3: Holy shit. That's cool as hell.
1: It's cool as hell. It's terrifying. You
2: should go pitch that as like the new Saw movie screenplay.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Jigsaw just puts everyone in a giant uh, aquarium tank full of cookie cutter sharks. And that's the whole movie. I love that shit. One continuous shot for 90 minutes.
1: Next up. I'm going to do the least likely... Uh, This is reptiles. Essentially, marine reptiles are pretty rare. They don't happen all that often, and when they do, they're usually pretty small, and they're only marine in the very broadest sense.
2: Is this like saltwater croc mermaid edition?
1: Uh, Yes, um, saltwater croc, saltwater turtles, and um, sea snakes.
3: That would actually be cool as hell, though. I know Mm. I said cool as hell like 600 times, but I just think mermaids are... Fucking rad. I'm just imagining, like, a, like a mermaid with a giant, like, a crocodile tail, just, like, and, like, venomous teeth, just, like, death rolling oh, wait People. till
1: I get to the end. Oh, incredible.
3: So, for reptiles, uh,
1: do they fuck? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but they don't do it for fun. Oh. Um, that you know of. Saltwater crocs show remarkable maternal care. Just really careful with their kids. Sea turtles. Sea turtles show no maternal care whatsoever. They just bury yeah. a ton of eggs on the shore and then they fuck off Stick, and that's it.
3: Stick those fuckers in a hole and hope for the best. I don't know. Yep. In um, worst case, there's less sea turtles that eat all the fish. They don't give a shit. <laughs> um, More plastic bottles for me, motherfuckers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note,
2: plastic straws
3: are bad. Um, so one thing about
1: their young, they hatch as small versions of the adults. So that's something that's not always the same.
3: Um, so funny. Can you imagine if we did that. If we just laid eggs, in a little tiny, like. Just, Honestly, technically we're the same. No, but like that look like exactly like a fully grown adult. Like, like adult proportions. proportions. It just like grows up like fucking Caillou. Uh, just like slowly extending over time. Yeah, like one of
2: those things that you put it in water. And like, it looks
1: like a big dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Like one of those, um, the, the party, party favors, that like grow your own
2: boyfriend. Yes.
3: God. See, I wish that babies were like that. I would like babies a lot more if they were just like little fucking business dudes. (laughs) Suit and tie. Yeah. Put them in the tiny baby suit. I love that. Um, so where could you
1: find marine reptiles? Um, Danae's bed. (laughs) Um, they, they still require oxygen. They definitely need oxygen. So they're likely going to be surface dwelling, um, probably coastal, especially given that most of them, with the exception of sea turtles, do need to sleep on, uh, like at the surface. Um, so they can often be seen basking because they're ectothermic. Um, now here's oxygen requirements for you. Sea turtles, oxygen can last between 5 and 40 minutes when they're foraging. So they can spend between 5 and 40 minutes before they come up for air. Sure. When they're sleeping, between four and seven
3: hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. what, do they just like massive slow, massively slow their metabolism down? Pretty much.
1: Um, that being said, if you if a, um, a sea turtle or a crocodile, get, well, specifically sea turtle because they have that um, diving distance, mm-hmm. if they get stuck underwater and start to thrash around, they can drown within um, two or three minutes. Oh, wow. Yes. So that is important. If you are making reptilian mermaids, in battle, they don't last without surfacing.
3: Yeah, uh, they would have to stay at the surface, especially if they like were sentient and like fighting, like fighting, squabbling with each other more, uh, more than just like fighting the way an animal would. Exactly. Uh, something could just put you down. Yeah. And you'd be dead. Pretty much. That would explain um, why they spend so much time sitting on rocks, though, if they were reptiles, to be Yes. Fair.
1: They also they need to bask and they need to breathe. Yeah. Um... Also, um, both saltwater crocs and sea turtles are known to migrate using, by drifting on currents. They can just wait for the currents to change the right way they want, they jump in there, and they just let the current do the work. Uh, so that's a really interesting behaviour that you could bring in if you do, do make uh, reptilian mermaids. Now, as far as diet goes, pretty much all carnivorous. Crocs eat live prey, and sea turtles eat mostly uh, jellies if they're omniv- omnivorous. Some sea turtles are herbivorous, but not many, and they're generally smaller. Um, yeah, so essentially, what I'm seeing, I saw a pattern when I was researching here. Pretty much all large marine animals are carnivores. Mm. They just need a lot more energy, so they hunt.
3: Yeah. Um, in fact, because I because I was I, my research kind of touched on this a little bit as well. Um, I believe that dugongs and animals like dugongs are the only, at least ocean mammals, mm. um, that are not carnivorous.
1: Absolutely. I and I will talk a little bit about dugongs
3: and manatees. Yeah. Um, in the
1: same same realm.
3: It's just it's wild how common it is in the ocean. Mm.
1: Um. Oh yeah. And communication. Sorry, I forgot communication for fish. So I'll go back there before I get to mammals. Yeah. Um. Sea turtles still unsure as to how they communicate exactly. Hmm. Um, they have been witnessed using bioluminescence to communicate. <gasps> That's
0: um, cool as hell. This
1: is yeah. this is just in the past two years that this has been discovered. Um, but they actually do use bioluminescence as a signalling mechanism. Very recently.
3: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nuts, right? And like the implications that that has on. Like, them having, like, a direct means of communication like that, like, even deep under the ocean. Mm. I mean, that could say a lot about how turtles work, you know? But
1: mm. um, well then, for, for crocs, it's mostly in body language, but they are known to speak mostly in growls. Mm. So it's not sort of use of language, but they do growl quite a lot and in different ways, using different pitch and and length to communicate different basic ideas like um, threat or mating calls um, Cool. So that their food,
3: yeah, they're yeah. so solitary that they just don't really have much of a need to communicate. I guess at the mm-hmm. end of the day, like beyond like basic functional things, you know. Exactly.
1: Um, with fish, pretty much the same. Cephalopods use vision, so they will actually use camouflage sometimes as a method of communication. Hmm. Um, so they would change the markings on their in their appearance to communicate, um, which is really
3: interesting. Wow! Oh my god, that could. I mean. That opens up the possibility of there literally being cephalopods in existence with written language.
1: I love that. Just write it on your body in cam-
3: in um, camouflage. Right. I mean, uh, the hieroglyphs in ancient Egypt didn't look like writing until we worked out that it was. Exactly. Maybe um, cephalopod markings are the same? I don't know.
1: Cycleroptici use electric communication a lot. So they communicate um, generally by getting to know who's where through electric currents. Uh, and sharks are known to have very keen senses, but we don't really know much about how they communicate exactly. Um, so they can hear, smell, and see very clearly, but we don't really know how they communicate too much. That's kind of uncertain.
3: Oh, huh, interesting.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to jump onto mammals. Uh, do they fuck? Fuck? Yeah, they do. Absolute fuck fuck. It. Um, mammals absolutely. Mammals—they're the only ones out there that have those titties. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's literally the definition of a mammal is, does it have tits? Yeah. Does it lactate? That's it. Um, that's all you need. Yeah. So marine mammals, specifically dolphins, have actually been shown to have sex for pleasure as well. So they they don't just mate, they fuck. Fuck. Um,
3: yes, my horny little guys.
1: Good on you. And all marine mammals have live birth. So that's just the way it's going to be. They're going to give birth live in the water. Um, and the babies, again, tend to be juveniles, so they'll be pretty much the same form as the adult, just smaller, maybe different proportions. Now, whales have really fatty milk, as in the, the milk has been described as the consistency of toothpaste. Um, what? Ew. Because it, it is so fatty because the babies have to gain so much weight so
3: quickly. That's the worst. Um,
2: I'm just
0: trying to
3: imagine like how that would feel. <laughs> um <laughs> Wow, but yeah, because I guess you've got to go from being, like, a tiny little baby whale, which I imagine is a very small animal, to being... um, Compared to an adult whale? Small. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not a small animal compared to my pitiful body. But, like, (laughs) it's small in the grand scheme of whale proportions. In the
1: grand scheme of whale proportions, yeah. Um... Now, here's the thing about marine mammals... You'll mind if I just become the largest mammal on Earth? Sure, go nuts. (laughs) Um, So, here's a fun thing that'll change society a little bit, is that in sea mammals, men are unlikely to have a direct paternal relationship to their kids. Just really not likely to, because they have long gestation periods, and usually the, um, the women tend to just go off on their own. They just do their own thing, and because there's no certainty between the the males mating with the, the females and actually knowing if that's their kid or some, some other dude's kid, the men will just go hunt for the pack or, you know, if they're not predators, then they'll just do their own thing and the women are the ones that do the maternal care. Oh, of
2: course. Yeah. Am I right?
1: Um, and it's, yeah, it's a result of long gestation periods and often um, polygyny, uh, which is just multiple partners in order to maximise the chance of reproduction. Now, as far as what they eat, pretty much all of them are carnivores. Whales eat plankton and small sea life. Seals, dolphins, they eat fish. Um, it is manatees and dugongs that are herbivorous. Mm. However, they, eat, they need to eat about 10 to 15% of their body weight a day. So that's up to 50 kilograms of vegetable life a day.
3: Yeah, it's a very ine- inefficient method of food delivery.
1: They spend up to seven hours a day grazing. So, if you're going to make your mermaids herbivorous, all they do is eat. Yeah,
3: That's no got to be all they do.
1: Mood. Yeah, it's just, they've got to eat so much to maintain the blubber, and... Pretty much any marine mammal, apart from dolphins, and even dolphins to an extent, have a fair bit of blood.
3: Yeah, uh, that insulation is just essential when you're like a warm-blooded mammal down uh, dealing with those depths. Exactly, and that level of pressure as well, mind you. Mm.
1: And then, as far as communication, they mammals tend to have the most sophisticated methods of communication that we've measured, probably because we measure communication in a similar way to the way we do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so dolphins using clicks and whistles mostly. Weddell seals are the ones that I would model mermaid communication off, just because they vocalise both on water and on land. Um, They use various trills, chirps, uh, chugs, and knocks. Yeah, Yeah, all sorts of sounds. And they appear to create, contain prefixes and suffixes that emphasise certain messages. Oh. Yeah. I know, right? And their vocalisations can last up to 70 seconds using different rhythmic patterns. So, Weddle Seals have been shown to use extensive communication.
3: Wow, that's basically just... Like, that just is speech about them. Yeah, pretty much. Talk.
1: It's just... It's pretty much, as far as we can tell, rudimentary speech. Yeah, wow. Um, And, yeah, they may have a strong musical culture as well. Some um, marine mammals have been shown just making noise for the hell of it. So, that's a lot. That's fun. And here's where I get to the one I love the most. This is the... Probably, apart from marine reptile, this is probably the, the least likely... But it is so fun. Amphibian mermaids. Please, for the love of God, make amphibian mermaids.
2: Fun.
1: Sometimes. So, just for those of you who are unsure about what amphibian actually means, because I was, um, they're ectothermic, which means they get their heat sources from elsewhere, um, tetrapod vertebrates, which means they have four limbs and a spine. Now, four limbs may be a barrier to being mermaids. That being said, Sometimes some of those limbs are auxiliary, so you can only see two on the outside, or sometimes none, but they will have the basis of having had limbs at some point in the evolutionary chain.
0: <laughs> Hello.
3: <laughs> oh, I always forget that animals could just evolve their limbs away sometimes. Whales. It, oh, it never it never stops making me laugh. To just be like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go through puberty today, and tomorrow I just went over arms. And that's just how life is. Can you imagine being like that? (laughs) That's crazy.
1: Wild. Yeah, so this is going to be a little less likely because there are no true marine amphibians. The especially large ones. um, The largest amphibians that we have alive today, extant today, are about 1.8 metres long, which is about as tall as a human, but also very skinny. They just—it's the the Chinese giant salamander. Is the um the the largest extant amphibian today? Oh, okay. But yeah, they're just they're just long and skinny.
3: Do you know if there's any like reason why they have to be long and skinny specifically? Like, do you know? What um, that just
1: to, to uh, just the way that they've evolved is they are tend to be smaller creatures. The way that they live, the caloric requirements, uh, the way they hunt, the fact they're ectothermic. Um, they, uh, there are there are theorised um, older species that were, like, human-sized or larger, that were big, mostly looking like salamanders.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so they're going to be what you'd kind of... what you model it off the most.
3: Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah, I guess being, like, long and thin helps you, like, streamline through the water, though, if you have a body that can also be on there.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do they fuck? Sometimes. Um, all of them are egg-based, um, so they will be either oviparous or ovoviviparous. Oviv- so, they're either egg lay, they tend to lay eggs in large clusters in damp or underwater environments. It's generally freshwater underwater environments, so potentially they will be coastal and they'll go inland to, to lay eggs. Those ones kind of dry hump. The male kind of holds under the back of the female. The female drops all the eggs and the male just drops sperm all over that. Oh my god. Yep, it's, it's fun. Um, and they'll give birth to tadpoles, so they'll begin life with gills, they'll be completely marine, and then... They will also be able to breathe through their skin, and as they mature, the gills will close up in favor of lungs, and they will still be able to breathe through their skin just to help that out. Um, the ones that are live, live birth, so they're ovoviviparous. They'll gestate the eggs inside the body. They do fuck.
3: They're yucky though.
1: They are a bit yucky.
3: Like, uh, oh yeah, no. I'm thinking about that one toad that like just has its has its babies kind of sitting inside its back. Ooh, and just yeah. kind of gives birth to them like that just like shh, thong, just fucking like plops them out mm. Ugh, yuck
1: so what environments tend to be warm environments um, they t- have to sun themselves to keep warm their skin's covered in mucus to avoid it drying so they're likely going to uh, arrive on land a lot more but also it's going to have to be warm and humid just a-, a fun thing about them is air breathing is by buckle pumping which is they don't they can't actively inflate their lungs they have to suck air in by expanding an air sac, or their, essentially their cheeks, and then close their mouth and push it in to inflate their lungs.
3: What a brave idiot.
1: So that, that's part of why frogs croak, is because that's the method that they use to breathe in and out. Oh. Yep.
3: I guess that explains why it's so constant. Yep.
1: They'll almost always be carnivorous, while well, the tadpoles can be herbivorous, um, but the big thing about how they hunt Almost all amphibians have a sticky tongue, like a frog. Um, so they will just grab their prey, suck it in. Um, the marine amphibians, I love the way they hunt. Uh, it's probably not so likely if your mermaid has human proportions, but basically they will use suction. They will use that buckle pump that they have, or the air sac, and they'll just suck in air and catch their prey with that.
0: Oh, ah,
2: it's like a fun little... Pump. I can see how they would
1: seduce me. Anyway, so as far as communication, they'll... Uh, frogs take a lot of energy to communicate. About fifteen percent of their muscle mass um, in, in males is specifically to make noise. Yeah, yeah. crazy. Um, but it tends to be mostly for mating, and the placement of their ears is not suited for localization of sound. They can't tell where sounds come from. Their ears are too close together.
3: So that just seems like poor design. Mm.
1: Um, salamanders they can bark and squeak or make popping noises by rubbing various bones together. Um, Yes, they have bones designed to rub together to make clicks and scraping sounds. Don't we all? See a doctor. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's sort of the extent of communication that we've experienced, is mostly mating calls or threat signals um, using those methods.
3: Okay. Yeah.
1: So it's worth thinking about uh, what class that, that your mermaids will belong to, what that means for how they eat, how they mate, how they communicate and how that will affect their societies and how they how they interact with people so whether they'll have developed language whether they're going to try and hunt um, whether they're going to be protective of their young whether your players can fuck them and they will they will try if it's possible
3: they'll do it yeah
2: so going off i guess uh types of mermaids i've sort of explored a couple different specific mythological mermaid-like creatures that I've found sort of popping up around the world across time. Uh, It's really interesting because mermaids as a mythological creature seems to be either depicted as like these beautiful, inviting seductresses or virginal maidens that can like bestow boons or fall in love with humans, or other times as like these slimy, creepy, deceitful killer things that cause floods and storms and shipwrecks and drownings.
3: They really don't get any, like, grey area, do
2: they? No, not a lot. Although I do talk about um, a couple at the end that are sort of in the grey area, like they're sort of either fuck you or love you, I don't know.
1: <laughs> they can kind of be both if they... Yeah, they
2: can be both, they're switchy like that. Okay,
1: so you've got your Doms, your Subs, and your Switches. Exactly. Yeah, cool.
2: But it's sort of like, why the mixed reviews of Mermaids, right? Mm. Like,
3: Yeah, what's up with that?
2: Um, so, going into some of the more nice or beautiful ones, um, there's a really popular trope in Scotland and the Orkney Isles that's spread all over the world called um, Selkies. If Ooh, you guys have heard of those. I have heard of Selkies. Yeah, everyone's heard of Selkies these days. They're getting pretty popular. Basically, they're gentle seals, basically, in the water and humans on land. Uh, but oftentimes, in, in a story about a Selkie, their seal skin will get stolen. And so then they'll marry a human and have children. <laughs> only to later find their seal skin and disappear back to sea. Wild. Yeah, so this trope of sort of like coming on land for whatever reason, but eventually being pulled back to the sea is really prolific amongst mermaids. So maybe have a think with your own sort of creatures and characters about, you know, whether they're there for a long time or whether they're, you know, they have this imperative that they can't help but obey, even if they really want something else like to be married or to have children or to fall in love with someone else that, that sometimes you can't help your nature
3: yeah uh well uh, that kind of touches a little bit and i'll get into it in my thing mm-hmm. but it touches a little bit on some of the stuff that i was looking into because i was looking into um like some of the environmental psychology that would kind of that you could at least presumably attribute to um to mermaids and stuff and it's really interesting to see like how what the effect that places like that and stuff have on us because mm-hmm. um like something like that could be as something as um, complicated as like a magical curse or real or even just be as simple as like homesick
2: yeah exactly another another interesting one i found was from brazil called the Iara, or the lady of the waters no relation unfortunately to the lady of the lake from the king afterwards oh. speaking of sort of different types of animals that could be from um, originally she was sort of known as like a water snake but then later more as like a man or more as, as a woman with sort of green eyes and brown skin huh. yeah so I guess over time uh, mermaids do seem to have become more and more personified because you do see in like the older myths and legends they are basically animals that can speak or, or what have you you know monstrous creations and Then over time they become more like women or more like men
3: Hmm. Do you know about like when in history that change started taking place?
2: I don't know. It was sort of just generally over time. Okay. It's like happens a gradual like, transition. Yeah, well, it seems to have happened different for every legend or every culture, but I think definitely ever since, I guess, Disney started whitewashing. Not whitewashing, <laughs> but. Disney started, like, you know. Um, Sanitized been, it. Yeah, they've undergone yeah. this massive sanitization as these nice, pretty women.
1: Yeah, I do. It is interesting to see all of our different um, myths being very safe the way we know them now. Yeah. Um, that exactly. Where they used to be absolutely savage, I guess.
2: Exactly. Um, I think a common theme amongst mermaids too is that you know they're known as, as seductresses. Mm. Oftentimes a story or a lore around will surround their, sexual, their sex appeal or their ability to lure men away or lure women away. Like the Ciara chick in Brazil um, is blamed basically whenever men disappear in the Amazon because it's said that she takes them to her underwater palace where they become her lovers. Which doesn't sound too bad. But I think the nicest story of of sort of merfolky type of creatures that I found was from the Caribbean, and it's called the Akaya. And basically, they're young men and women who are disowned by the native communities, so they go to live by the sea, and then they're sought out by the Akaya and turn into one of their own, so they won't ever feel rejected or alone again. Oh, That's so sweet, right?
3: That's so beautiful. I love oh. the, I love uh, I love a monster myth that's just about, like, making your life a little bit better when everyone mm. around you is mean, rather than, like, the other way around.
2: Whereas probably in real life, like, those kids drown themselves.
3: Yeah, yikes yikes.
2: But then we turn away from, I guess, these more sanitised, more beautiful versions of mermaids to the truly terrifying. And I think uh, Japan is a really good um, example of this. They have a creature called the Kappa, which you might know as uh, appearing in Harry Potter as a, a water-like creature. I believe the Kappa is the one that sort of always like, holds onto you. Oh,
1: okay, so this is um, in Goblet of Fire where they...
2: Yeah, yeah underwater well, oh, trials. Okay. Yeah. Tri- you know she talks about the kappas and, and the other sort of um, denizens of the water. In in Japan, kappas sort of are child-sized water spirits so that haunt lakes, coasts, and rivers. And noticeably, they appear more animal than human, usually with like monkey faces and tortoise shell backs. Uh, they often challenge humans to games of skill, where the penalty for losing is death. Right. Um, and they usually have an appetite for children and are foolish enough to swim alone in remote places.
3: Does Does it say what the what the price is if you win? And know, probably
2: like a drink of
3: water. Fuck yeah. See, I'm looking That's at fuck. That's it. Oh, well. See, if that was on the table, right. then I can see why you're engaging in games of skill with cabbies. Mm-hmm. Then again, I guess they're like children. You want spirits. to
2: something with a monkey face and a
3: tortoise shell? Well. Yeah. yeah. Having a
1: look at this. Sort of myth. This is where I guess your, your sea turtle-based mermaids right. might come from. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, this may not be the, the, the sexiest iteration.
2: Um, the in Norway, actually, they're called finfolk, which is
3: Finnfolk? I like that. That's fun. Yeah. That's Finnfolk, simple.
2: Right, that's the they them of black mermaids. <laughs> finfolk. <laughs> um, they're shape shifters of the sea. They're basically nomads that alternate between land and their ancestral sea home. And they basically abduct humans for spouses, and but more make them like a servant than a partner. You know, uh, yeah. They're said to have, they're like addicted to silver, so you can sort of escape their grasp by like chucking a silver coin at them if they try and grab you, uh, which seems like a nice capitalistic way to,
3: to buy them all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, that just seems like... Oh no,
2: there's lots of fin folk in my lake.
3: If
2: you <laughs> know, it, you have got to throw silver in the water.
3: See, to me, that reads as, as something the fin folk would tell us, so that so while they're capturing us, they can also just go pick up the silver we threw afterwards. Yeah,
2: true. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so that they just eat us and our cool silver. Yeah,
2: that's God. bad. Uh, but yeah, there's, as I mentioned, a couple of them that sort of teeter on the border between, I guess, good and bad.
0: Yeah,
2: mm. um, if it's as simplistic as that. Uh, another Japanese one, the. I cannot pronounce his name, so sorry. But like the Ningyo. Basically, a giant fish with a human face uh, and again a monkey mouth. Don't know what. They clearly like, I really do not like monkeys in Japan. Yeah. Um, sometimes they have horns and fangs. And basically, the good part, right? Anyone who eats a Ningyo, right? If you eat it, you can have eternal youth and beauty. But Catch 22, if you catch it, it brings terrible storms and misfortune to your entire village. Ah. So, like, obviously you have to catch it to eat it, right? So yeah. basically you'll be fine, but your village gets fucked.
3: There you go. Um, Does it count if you, like, crank it into swimming into your mouth? Is that catching it? I'd say so. Well, I'm out of ideas then. Sorry, guys, we're not going to eat the nino tonight. <laughs> Back to the drawing board.
2: In Ireland, there's um, a... They're called Merrow, which I think is an awesome thing. And basically, they wear a cute little magical cap that lets them live underwater. Um, female marrow basically have long green hair, and are similar to traditional siren-type mermaids, you know, really beautiful. But uh, the male marrow are hideous and, and really frightening and more fish than men, and they're actually really abusive to the female marrow, so that the females actually leave and have relationships with human men. And then the man well, that's
3: not going to be an improvement, you silly marrow.
2: No. And then the mandarin offspring have, like, scales and webbing between their fingers. So you see here again, like, it all comes back to, like, if children are born with defects, people always try and find, like, an explanation for it, blah, 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 blah.
3: It wasn't my kid, it's the
0: fish man's exactly. kid.
2: Crazy. Um, but um, again,
0: yeah. Oh, go on.
2: I was just going to say, like, the selkies, the the Mero frequently just become
1: tired of land, and they find their way back to sea with or without the human family. Just on Mero, um, if you look at your monster, monster manual in um, D&D 5e, take a look at the difference between supposed merfolk and merrow. So essentially, for those of you who don't have a monster manual in front of you, um, merfolk are these really beautiful blue-skinned aquatic creatures um, the ones that are depicted are female, but it specifically states merfolk in both genders mm. uh, and probably in between.
3: I've, I know, yeah.
1: Fish are known to change change sex um mid-life okay. as well.
3: Yeah, like salmon doing so. Yeah. So yeah, like, but then the mirror has got this cool like catfish kind of tendrils, and it's mm. got it's like got like these big fins kind of coming out of its face, and it um, even, like really stark. Um, that are like really starkly visible in the way that like they try and, kind of tried to downplay the
1: fishiness of the merfolk. It's cool. Mm. And they basically... I think what they've done is they've taken that image of the male marrow opening, these horrendous twisted beasts, and they've pulled that into the mythos. Essentially, these are mermaids that got corrupted by uh, the abyss. So they got... Um, oh. They found... Uh, one of the kings found a corrupted item, a cursed item, which sent them all mad. They tried to open a portal to the abyss... They managed, slaying hundreds of merfolk in the process, and the ones that got stuck in the abyss after hundreds of years got released back out as these horrible, twisted versions um, that are known to leave bodies tied together around their territory to mark
3: where not to go.
2: Love that. That's polite. That's polite, mm. telling you where not to go, I
3: feel. Yeah, that's, that was kind of them, because they couldn't just let you swim in, and that would have probably gone a lot worse for you than it would for them. Oh, probably.
2: Mm. Here's another quick last uh, one that's sort of both nice and bad. The Russian Rusalka, which literally translates as mermaid a couple times,
0: mm. uh,
2: they are basically these water nymphs that were originally considered benevolent because they came come out in the spring to water the crops, which is pretty nice, but there also happen to be the spirits of girls who've died violently, and so as a result they lure men and children to like, their watery deaths. Oh. and sort
1: of use their long hair to, like, trap and entangle victims. That is amazing. Right? Yeah. Um, I want, to run, I want at some point, to run through um, some of these other myths from around the world that are about uh, essentially slaughtered spirits that come back in certain forms to to have revenge, because there are so many of them around the place as sort of like a, a myth with a moral. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think it deserves its own episode at some point to do... A, a highlight on vengeful spirits.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. As a little bonus to close it off, uh, I found out which mermaid the Starbucks logo depicts. Really? Oh! Yes, it's this French spirit called Madison who basically was like this willful maiden who attempts to on her father on behalf of her mother, but then her mom's like, no, fuck you, I didn't want that, and punished, gets punished, um by her mother with a serpent's tail uh, and then she basically turned into like the sea fairy. So when you see her on the coffee cup, it's sort of like, oh, she's been cursed and like, that's the tail she's been cursed with by her mom. Uh,
3: there you go. Yeah. Wait, what's that going to do with coffee though? I don't know. Weird pick, Strange know. pick, but it's iconic. Just like some old French legend about mermaids. I just don't know why you put that on your cafe.
2: Oh, I think it's because Starbucks is a nautical character.
3: Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And the,
2: and the like, original creative partner was, like, digging through these marina, just trying to find, like, a hot sign, and he found... Um, <laughs> and he like, oh, yeah.
3: See, I, I reckon they probably were already looking through it. I want to believe that they were, like, that they, they found... They were looking at sexy mermaids, and they were like, oh, my God, dude, I just had the best idea for a cafe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like casually looking at like mermaid hand tied together, you know how it be. You you know how it be. Yeah. Basically, kind of at the end of the day, now that we've established like we've established biology, we're talking about like some different types of myths and stuff. I really wanted to get into like what would be the actual difference between like human beings or whatever the equivalent is in your setting uh, and murmurs. That requires kind of looking at, um, assuming that we're working in, like, a D&D setting, where it can be reasonably assumed that most, like, sentient land dwelling creatures are similar enough that, like, they can all speak common, and they can all be all like, use the same economy and live in the same sorts of places and stuff. Hmm. It requires so if, if we're working on that assumption, there's only really a few differences that would be between like those societies and a mermaid society. Obviously, those being the place that they are, uh, the like actual composition of their body, um, and the and any differences in like the way sentience works in creatures that aren't as we are, yeah. Um, so. That kind of led me down this rabbit hole of, um, predominantly, I was looking at um, this field called environmental psychology, which is basically just like the study, it's a it's multi, multidisciplinary study, kind of emerged in the 60s as a way to examine, like, the effect of places on how individuals are, like, how they behave, like, what impact places in our lives have on our personality and our identity and stuff, which kind of ended up being the main thing. So, in terms of um, size and stuff, that's one of the more kind of significant differences between, um, like, terrestrial creatures and large land, uh, aquatic things like this. this. Large aquatic creatures. Yeah. Um, creatures, you know, the word I do- used. Yeah, already. the exact word that you used. Haha. Um So, with the exception of, like, large whales and otters, interestingly enough, um, ocean mammals, which I specifically was looking at mammals, just because of the um, uh, specifically because they would have to come to the surface so often. So just in a in a setting where presuming that they'd been around for like about the same num- amount of time as people had, then it may not be likely for them to have come to the surface any other way. So I just uh, I'm assuming for the sake of argument that they have to breathe air, mm. um, and therefore probably mammalian. Um, That's fair. Given I mean, the ocean
1: and how it is. Looking at what we discussed earlier, realistically, there's there's only one scenario in which they don't need to surface at some point. Yeah, which exactly. is if they are fish.
3: Yeah, which just like makes it so much more unlikely that they would have even made contact with land creatures, given like the depth of the ocean. Like mm-hmm. it would just make more sense for those for animals like that to go further down. Um, so. Ocean mammals are typically about 500 kilograms um, uh, and typically a little bit longer than, like, tall humans are. Um, That doesn't make a, have a massive effect, but it is significant, um, especially when we're looking at whales. So the reason whales are so much bigger than than other ocean mammals is, so the impact on your metabolism, uh, like the strain on your metabolism from having a larger body, Kind of stops increasing at a certain point. Ah. So, whales have kind of reached a point where they're so big that they're actually less affected by their body mass hmm. in terms of their metabolism than most other things hmm. are. It would probably explain why um, other creatures in the ocean are typically around a similar size, other than otters, which are just like, but that's just a result of their like evolution. Hmm. They're just the ancestors they happen to come from are really small um oh so cute um but yeah that's kind of why everything's typically about the same size it's probably something to do with like their metabolism in both um in largely uh from the studies i was looking at due to like the temperature of the ocean it really affects like how big they can grow so yeah whales managed to get away with it by having grown super big and engaging in what is actually quite high exertion foraging to get like enough krill and stuff to keep themselves to keep themselves going. So realistically, we're probably going to be dealing with uh, something about the size of like a dolphin, um, if we're looking at something like this. Um, just by virtue of uh, the fact that like sentient creatures would probably be more social by nature, and being bigger would make less sense for them because yeah. they couldn't be in in groups like that. Um, and especially if we're dealing with things with hands, because hands are designed to be in like a sos- be useful in a society in a group. Mm. Not on their own. They, we're not talking about creatures that have like claws and stuff. Like, a tail in the ocean is the equivalent of just legs on land. They're no more competent than we are. Yeah, exactly. At least not by default, yeah. Um, so, so we're probably dealing with something about that size. Um, the other thing is that they would be sentient creatures. In fact, scientists um, have, since 2012, uh, largely believed that animals other than humans are sentient for the most part, it's kind of seeming. Um, Even fish, we believe, feel... There is just as much evidence, according to um, Victoria Braithwaite, who wrote a book on the topic, Hmm. uh, there is just as much evidence that fish feel pain and suffering as mammals. So, like, we're talking about... So, basically, we're talking about something that's about human-sized, probably mammalian, and with sentience. And with the ability to pass on information as well. That's something that is um, not common not uh uncommon in other animals i mean chimpanzees are able to teach teach each other new methods of using tools
1: exactly and we were talking earlier about weddell seals we were talking earlier about weddell yeah, seals exactly. having extended vocalizations that were shown to have prefixes and suffixes to change the meaning
3: yeah so we're dealing with we're definitely dealing with uh animals that probably or creatures is probably being be, uh, i suppose a more accurate Uh, word to use there that probably have like an equivalent level of sentience to human beings um, as we know them Mm. so that means that the main impact is then going to be the place that they exist the environment so the way that environment affects um, our psychology is kind of broken down into looking at a few different things Um, the main concepts of environmental psychology are place identity uh, which is basically the meaning of and like the meaning, the significance, the kind of whatever of a local place to the population in that area, and the effect that this has on their personal identity. Um, place attachment deals with essentially the, I mean, that the attachment, the attachment that they have to a the specific are. place. Um, and the other one that I am going to talk about is, um, nothing, because I'm wrong. That's all of the things <laughs> that I'm talking... That's the, all the relevant things. Excellent. you talk about the
2: concept
3: of nothing? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I didn't take notes on that.
1: Uh, watch out for our upcoming episode
3: on nothing. <laughs> so, um, place identity is not a super big deal in this context, really. I mean, some people... Some people think that it's 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 a fairly significant tool for um, kind of analyzing the way that like minority communities and stuff can like take back places like locations that have kind of been taken taken from them, which could be useful in the context of like mermaids that had had their um, their like territory taken over by like other aquatic or perhaps even terrestrial creatures. But for the most part, what we're going to be dealing with is their attachment. To the ocean. Okay. Uh, that's going to influence most things, uh, at least influence most of the differences between us and them. So place attachment, we examine through um, the tripper type model, which was um, developed by a couple of theorists, Scanlon and Gifford in 2010, um, which basically splits it down into splits attachment down into three different things: the person who is being attached, mm. the process of attachment, and the place attached to. When talking about uh, attachment as well, it's important to distinguish uh, rootedness and uh, sense of place. Because, which seems like it's not that big of a deal, but uh, a society that is rooted in, like, an actual sense is a society that has had such a long history, such a long and often personal history, often, like, familial, Mm. typically, um, in a specific location, that, like, that location itself is part of their fundamental identity, as opposed to, like, a sense of place which is like association with a place and like comfort from a place without it being like part of your heritage mm. it's part of your identity but not part of like your
1: history you know um sorry just for australians listening one of two things firstly a society being rooted uh does not mean that they're fucked <laughs> um, let's just i was just gonna power on um but secondly i i think from my understanding and i I'll run this past you to make sure I've got the understanding correct sure a society that is rooted so has a deep connection with the land. I'm taking that to mean very similar to our indigenous communities who like grew up have a long history on the lands mm. here yeah uh, and uh, a sense of place is more like the colonized history here where you know we don't have hundreds of thousands of years of connection to the land we've just ended up here.
3: Yeah, literally exactly. The examples that are often used um in like the Western world are the examples of Europe for Europeans that have been there for like stretching back for however long. Mm. Um and American settlers in America, having like not really having uh, families and stuff in groups that have been like moving around for quite a while, don't really have that like established kind of mm. spot. But yeah, yeah, it's like exactly that dynamic. Um, Pretty much invader and invaded dynamic. Um, So the person uh, is attached typically through either uh, individual kind of milestones, like events in their lives, or like an association with a community. Typically through things done by that community. Uh, both of those things will increase like your attachment to a place, mm. whether it be because something important in your life took place there, or because um, like community behaviors typically things like um, improving an environment for the sake of the greater community and stuff, um, things like that actually not only increase like the overall like group association with the place, but it also like builds our pride in that place, which like increases that attachment. Mm. So kind of just anything good that happens there, or good that we do for that place, we'll build that attachment, we'll we'll make it so that person is attached somewhat to that place. Okay,
1: so the more you spend time with it, uh, nurture the land, build things on the land, um, hunt in it, eat on it, have kids there.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, The more you do both on your own and as a community. Hmm. um, Those are the two key things. Um, So then the process of attachment um, kind of deals with a few different things. there are the effective bonds like effective A-double-F, yeah. as in like the impact of uh, the impactful bonds that we have uh, related to a place are typically based on like the functional relationship between both the people there and the place itself so like your home would probably be somewhere you associate with like security and stuff and because you have
1: you know somewhere to sleep somewhere to eat
3: exactly and because of um, because of this this um, association um, with this like function it helps develop our kind of sense of familiarity and our sense of like safety in that place um because uh, this attachment stuff is almost always our attempt to kind of replicate previous good experiences it's like this place has been good in the past so this is my place you know okay that's
1: Um, i've not considered that but that's a, a really cool lens to think about it through it's it's been good to us in the past it should
3: be good to us in future. Yeah, I mean, really, that's all it comes down to. So uh, stuff like the knowledge and kind of group association, um, both on an individual level and like a community level, also uh, a big part of this process, like having kind of a communal law surrounding a place or having a community memories around a place, um, that like, again, helps build that familiarity, helps build that like association with safety. Then we talk about the place, so the place can be anything. It really does not matter what the place is, so long as it is a defined place that has some kind of like lived experience associated with it. It's um really separate from the reliance and we have on places for like a spiritual reason, places that we haven't like been before. Mm. Um, so like you would have, while somewhere like say you're in ancient Greece, somewhere like Mount Olympus or something has like in, incredible spiritual significance. But it's not a place you're attached to, because none of your like life took place there, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, typically, uh, a lot of the time, it's associated with like childhood memories. That's a massive part. Some people say that it's like exclusively a social thing, like the way the places are chosen. But there was a study by a couple of in two thousand and one by a couple of scientists uh, by the names of Hidalgo and Hernandez, who found that um, while social connections with a place really help strengthen the bonds. Um, you actually don't need to have any kind of social element at all. As like just having been there is enough.
1: Huh.
3: Um, so it's really just kind of compare the benefit of a place to the difficulty of living there. Mm. And that's really, if that kind of ends up being a positive thing, then you'll develop an attachment to that place. Um, and then that's really categorized mostly through behaviors like um, uh, keeping like proximity. Um, so, like, people that will, like, stay near home or get really, like, homesick or whatever is yeah. a result of this, typically. Um, even things like going away to just kind of, like, going on a trip to help, like, build your appreciation of, like, your home is mm-hmm. one of these, like, behaviours. So, with that in mind, just have, like, a, a, a few kind of examples of how I think this would, like, apply to... Um,
1: yeah, to mermaids. Apply
3: to mermaids. yeah. Like, so, for instance... Given them given um, the fact that like the ocean is as large as it is and goes in three dimensions, we would probably be dealing with a group that was more nomadic and hunter-gatherer than we are because I mean the ocean is full of fish in every direction. It makes way more sense to just seek more fish than it does to domesticate resources the way that we did mm. um, on land we're not we're just not you're just not dealing with that like limitation because i mean surface area alone and then depth it's just like they just probably wouldn't have to farm or anything
1: yeah especially like you can see of aquatic populations so many especially large creatures are carnivores because it's so much easier to hunt than it is to actually Mm. graze.
3: and they're almost all nomadic there's there are very very few aquatic creatures that set up in a specific place and when they do it's typically only for like a specific reason yeah generally what I found was it's mostly just for mating season mm. like sharks will have like islands that they go to as like a nursery and stuff to help take care of their young but that's about it
2: sure or turtles when they hatch
3: yeah exactly yeah well I mean even then They're turtles when they lay,
1: sorry. yeah turtles lay eggs on the same beach every time
0: mm-hmm. but
1: then they'll just disappear
3: and the the turtle chicks have to find their
1: way out mm. the
3: so, uh, domestication will probably happen, just because it's kind of, it seems to be kind of a natural urge, it happened kind of in all human societies at once, so it seems to be one of those, like, cultural universals, just kind of a side effect of sentience.
1: Yeah, um, um, if you're not sure about cultural universals, definitely take a hop back to some of our previous episodes, I think the biggest ones that we talk about them in are with... I talk about all, quite a bit in domestication. And then there was one beforehand that was big.
3: yeah. I, I wouldn't really into it on that. I can't think of what it is off of my head. Um, regardless, so domestication probably happened because it is like that kind of constant thing, but it probably be... of uh, They probably would have stuck to, like, predatory animals, like we did with wolves. Um, mm. Stuck to things like sharks and dolphins
1: and stuff. Dolphins have been known to be... to communicate and cooperate with other species. Yeah, exactly. They have also been known to be incredibly protective, be excellent wardens of humans in water, so they would be... A great example of of animals that are domesticated.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, In terms of their, um, in terms of like buildings, um, assuming that, uh, which I think is fairly safe, given the kind of similarities in the way that um, chimps and stuff learn and teach to the way that we do. um, Mm. Some like, I think it would be somewhat safe to assume that like a humanoid mammal would have similar cognitive processes to us. And as a result, we'll probably have well not buildings necessarily, because that would be really fucking difficult to build a building in the ocean with that amount of pressure without yeah, like yeah. um without like highly developed industrial technology. Is, which like developed to a point where it wouldn't make sense to be on under the ocean anyway at that point mm. because it would just be easier to build that stuff on land. But they would probably have some kind of stand-in for that. Uh, I mean, whether it be like smaller structures, uh, small structures and dwellings, or like tunnels and stuff, because we have this urge for a defensible space as part of this like environmental psychology.
1: I mean, to to hark back to the to, to the monster manual that I, I keep talking about here. Um, when in the entry about mermaids, uh, it does say that they don't have the tools necessary to create their own buildings um, and to create their own weapons. They tend to stick with spears, oh. and they tend to colonize a small reef or caves. Yes, That's what it generally says and I think that would be the most likely based on what you're saying.
3: Exactly. It would definitely be, it would either be um, like having probably something dug under the sand if they were like down at the bottom of the ocean or yeah, just like reappropriating like a cave or a reef or maybe some like very preliminary structures in kind of like lean-tos in the like wake of, I don't know, whatever it is. That would be the equivalent of, like, a wall that stops wind in the ocean. rocks. I don't know. Maybe a big whale, you know. (laughs) Um, Shipwrecks and stuff could be repurposed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, With that in mind, a mammalian creature, especially if they've been, like, overfishing for a long time, which is possible, uh, even given the amount of space there is in the ocean, just assuming that that was all they ate... Um, could have been forced kind of more towards land, and at this point have started building like rudimentary structures, have started like transitioning towards uh, maybe like a more amphibious evolution, maybe even like a, just a terrestrial, just go straight onto land.
1: Well, consider coastal mermaids who tend to bask, and potentially, if we're looking at amphibious ones, quite possibly they go to freshwater to lay eggs.
3: Mm, uh, amphibious mermaids could also be like a fun little transitional period between like a more like aquatic. A more fully aquatic mermaid, and uh, eventually just like a terrestrial creature, mm. just kind of like that in-between stage where they can exist. A missing link. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that would probably give them like kind of a better attitude towards humans. But anything else, any other mermaids would be spending most of their time underwater um, and away from humans, and probably wouldn't like us at all. But they, like we would be too big and too threatening, and we would have weapons and stuff so ultimately I think they probably wouldn't uh, want anything to do with like terrestrial creatures Hmm. Um, from like a speculative evolutionary standpoint. Especially considering there would probably be, um, like I said, more solitary creatures. Yeah,
1: We are definitively saying here that mermaids are solitary, and that is a fact about mermaids which are real.
3: Well, they just probably would be. Yeah. Just creatures in these conditions typically are. It makes more sense to spread out and look for more fish than it does to sit in one space and hope that fish come to you. Absolutely. Um, just the way that like resources are moving under the ocean. I mean, unless they started moving to vegetation... Did deep sea farming then they probably would have to be solitary for survival or unless they had like some social need the other thing is and here's my final point it is very possible that mermaids would in fact wear seashell bras because one of those key things that comes with place attachment one of those like, key behaviors is recreating the plate the environment that you've left mm. so it would make perfect sense based on um just like our understanding of psychology for mermaids um, to be doing something something like that, something that was like a souvenir of the ocean um, that they could kind of integrate into their appearance or their like day-to-day and something like that. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. So stuff like that, like total traps. Thank you for that. That was enlightening. I'm glad you
1: think so. I think we're definitely going to probably revisit uh, those sort of place attachment things in, in later episodes as well. Um, you've been amazing at bringing up some of these... Big concepts that apply to a lot of things, like those mm. cultural universals. Which, um, if you want to hear where we first bring it up, is in tattoos.
3: Ah, that um, makes sense. Body modification. Yeah,
1: and the place attachment. Um, so thank you for that.
3: Yeah, anytime. I like to. I like to get everything together in like one kind of comprehensive theory. Hmm. I like the interrelation of of something. Theories. Yeah.
1: Well, with that, uh, does anyone have anything to say before we take a quick
3: break? I'm gonna. Fucking nut. <laughs> I didn't like it. I didn't like saying it. And we are back. Hello, everyone. So, uh, we've spent an amount of time uh, just discussing a little, a, little fun, a little fun plot hook uh, to use with mermaids before we leave here for this week. So... So, what we came up with, imagine there is this like coastal town, probably like a small fishing village or maybe a shipping hub, something like that, mm. that um, recently has started mm. to have increased attack from aquatic predators. Oh no! Oh no, indeed. It turns out that the bloody Rasulka, which are from where can Russia. Hmm? Russia.
1: Ah, Russia. And so just as a as a reminder, the Rasulkas, they're the ones that were vengeful spirits of...
2: Um, Violent deaths, yeah. Little girls that died violently,
3: basically. Who were lovely, but would also drag men and children to yeah, their deaths. Yeah,
2: they'll water your crops, but they'll also use their long to drown
3: you. Yeah, so having showed up and watered some crops for a little while, everyone thinks that the Rasulka are chill. And then all of a sudden, people start fucking dying, don't they? They do. They do. they do. So the inhabitants manage to hold off the Rasalka for a little while, but eventually, eventually they come back, mm-hmm. and this time they come back with domesticated parasitic sharks. Cause why the fuck not? We have magic. Oh man! Now these sharks, what they do is whenever someone comes into the shallows to like approach the Rasalka to to fight them off, one of these sharks swims up underneath them, grabs their legs. And just never ever lets go. Takes a big old chomp and uh, holds on. Yeah, eventually, like just growing into them and replacing their their, their respiration and their legs with the shark's gills and tail, just uh, condemning them to uh, a, a life beneath the waves.
1: Now, just imagine being one of these kidnapped people. You've gone. You've spent your whole life on land. I mean, you may have swum a couple of times, but. You essentially live on land, mm. and then suddenly you've got this thing attached to you, and it drags you underwater, and you can't breathe. But that's fine, because it's doing the breathing for you, and now you just live underwater.
3: Yeah, because I mean, if that if that thing manages to, to, to turn, you, turn your bloody lungs off, and another thing that has I'm I mean, definitely not forgotten, I just don't want to give the sharks tips... <laughs> then, I mean, if they've taken your like legs, then they've got a lot of control over
1: where you move yeah. too. Yeah, Because well, you that... can only do so much with your arms, especially humanoid arms.
3: Oh, and that would, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the other thing. Um, is that um, sharks often have to keep swimming, so you would probably you probably wouldn't even have an opportunity to try and fix your situation because you'd be stuck as a little swimmer's shark forever. Just <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now your party has to help this uh, help this coastal town that is uh, being forced to fight an aquatic menace and their own um, kidnapped and transformed uh, lost loved ones uh, in order to maintain their dominance of the land above the waves.
1: I, I do love this sort of story hook because it gives you the opportunity to, to approach it in a couple of different ways. I yeah. mean, you can approach it with a workaround, you know, see why they're, why they're invading these waters. Yeah, not the could... migration, just... Stop them from coming up altogether. Exactly. Or you could approach it as um, you've got to deal with your loved ones and use it as a social adventure. Um, or you could just stick it to a pretty typical combat adventure if your player is so like that. Yeah. Choke, choke your party in a boat and have them kill some fucking mermaids. Fuck you. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, but that's what we've got for mermaids. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sticking around for this long. Uh, if you want to talk to us about what we've done, um, if you want to... Give us some feedback. Um, maybe even ask us some questions that we can research on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, get in touch. All of our socials that's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Dungeon Deep Dive. Or you can email us at deepdivetnc at gmail.com.
3: And again, I would stress if anyone has any feedback about this slightly new uh, format, which we're going to be trying for the next couple of episodes, but if you have any thoughts, please don't hesitate to let us know. We would love to hear them. We're just going to work up with some new stuff.
1: Exactly. And with that, we will see you next week
2: bye.
0: The TV shows we watch say a lot about ourselves.
2: Like how political dramas allow Kurt to escape from real-world politics.
0: And how Jane's obsessed with identity themes in teen drama.
2: (laughs) It can be tricky to work out why we love the things that we love. And that's why we started the podcast Made You Look.
0: Bothers me in superhero shows. Right. I don't know why. Each week we pick an episode of one of our favourite TV shows and force the (laughs) other person to watch it. Sometimes we actually manage to convince each other that these shows are great. I really appreciate that it could be super expository without being super expository. And sometimes we, mostly Jane, uh, pulls them to absolute pieces. Hey,
2: you can't just hang a lantern on it. And expect me not to notice that that's a dumb plot point to get you from A to B.
0: It's always a pretty fun time. And sometimes we discover new things about ourselves, our friendship, or something about the media we consume.
2: Oh, our friendship. Yeah. (laughs) Come find us. Made You Look is now available on the That's Not Canon podcast network.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.